I think the real problem, honestly, is that, and I'm, I won't mince word he, words here. It's that like our country hates moms. Like, I really think that's what it translates down to is that like from a business end, like we do not see mothers as productive members of the economy, even though they are. <laughs> Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we are here with Hannah Davidson talking about motherhood, which honestly, I didn't even think of it until just now, but it's kind of related to our caretaking episode because that is kind of a caretaking thing yeah. as well. But like, we're we're mainly interested, I think, in like the birthing and like the industry yeah. around it, right, for this, for this conversation. Mm-hmm. But why don't you tell us whatever you want to tell us about yourself just as a like context for the people listening? Yeah, sure. Would it be helpful for me to maybe talk about like how I came to this work and yeah okay yeah. cool so so yeah I'm so I'm in my mid-20s I first actually I think heard about doulas when I was a kid like I think I definitely was one of those I was one of those children who was really like I always had baby dolls I wouldn't have thought about it this way, but I look back now and realize like, oh shit, I have always kind of had this interest in birth. We used to watch like on Discovery, like on the Discovery Health Channel, there are those shows about people giving birth and we would straight up watch that even though it's like we (laughs) were like six and eight and probably didn't necessarily need to be watching that. Were they they graphic? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty intense. (laughs) And you know, now that I'm older, um, I actually, there's a woman I know back in Massachusetts who did this whole like documentary about like media portrayals of birth and how some of those shows are very problematic because they're so dramatic and because, not because they're graphic, but that they just end up, they, they treat like birth like this super heavily medicalized thing that is sort of some of the stuff that we'll get into um, that I in part disagree with. And so, yeah, I basically found out what doulas were when I was a teenager and I think just had this mindset of like, that's cool. Don't know if I'll ever be able to do that because I think that I just, I don't know. I think when I was younger, I just did not realize that was something I could do. And then it just became a function of being older and being like, nope, this is actually a thing I care about. I'm going to take a training. Learned that there was a home birth midwife back at home that offered um, a training for doulas. And I just did it and then really kind of got involved with the birth community back in Massachusetts and was really fortunate in Western Massachusetts, where I'm from, that there's a really big home birth and really big like kind of birth justice community around there. Um, and yeah, really just kind of found a home in that community. And so I think that especially millennials, a lot of us are not necessarily like thinking about trying to have kids anytime mm-hmm. soon, or at least in my circles, a lot of people are not thinking about trying to have kids. Um, yeah. I'm sort of an exception to that where like, that's a thing I'm actively planning for in the next couple of years. Yeah. From my perspective, I really, nothing about the birthing process yeah. is attracted to me. Like re- the first time, I, really the first time I heard vaginal tearing, I was like, I am never giving birth. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's just never going to happen, yeah. you know? And so it's completely out of my mind. It's completely just written off for me. Yeah. And that, but just because of that, you know? Yeah. No. And it's funny. Cause I also, I mean, I remember being little and having almost like a similar feeling, like being like, wow, this just seems terrifying. And I never want to do that. And then I think what's been interesting is a actually attending births 
has really shown me that that really only shows one piece of what birth can look like. So I have, so I did my birth doula training in 2014, which means I've technically been trained as a doula for six years. It's also probably helpful for me to say what a doula is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So a doula is basically a non-medical support person for people going through kind of any stage of reproductive health. There are doulas who do abortion work. And so that's someone who's really kind of like understands what it looks like to go through an abortion has oftentimes like either supported people in the actual like clinic. I've had a couple of friends who've done that work and then um, other folks will sometimes support from home um, if you're doing an at-home abortion. Um, And then the kind of doula training I've had really specific training in is birth doula training. So that's really being showing up for somebody while they're going through labor. Um, And then there's also the other kind of doula work that I've done a lot of, which is postpartum doula like work. Um, Mm -hmm. So postpartum doulas oftentimes are showing up when somebody's at home in the first couple months after they've given birth. When I've done postpartum doula work, that's been a lot of housekeeping. Sometimes it's just like emotionally processing the birth itself, Um, talking about like feelings that come up because that's just a huge transition point. Um, Sometimes it's helping do logistical things like set up a food train, which is basically like There's a lot of different sites you can do that on, but it's sort of reaching out to someone's whole social network and basically having them sign up to bring meals for a, you know, fixed amount of time. Sometimes it could be like a week or two. Other times I've had families who were awesome and figured out like how to make their whole social network, like cover their meals for like a month or two, um, which I just can't even imagine having that many people in your network to be able to account for that. Um, but other times I've done, when I've done that work, it's been like, oh, mom has two kids. One of them's four, one of them's a newborn. And either I'm entertaining the four-year-old so that way mom doesn't have to feel like she's, you know, kind of jumping between the two kids or I'm holding the newborn so she actually gets time with the four-year-old who doesn't usually get mom's attention because newborns take up your time like around the clock. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the difference between a doula and a midwife? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everybody always thinks they're the same thing and it's always... Yeah, I don't I don't really know the difference. <laughs> yeah, so midwives are trained medical professionals um, who specialize in like a low medical intervention birth or like some people would say natural birth. I think that like the language of natural birth is really complicated because Mm -hmm. C-sections do need to happen sometimes. And those are also a way of having a baby. And so like, I think it sometimes creates this dichotomy that's like not very delegitimizes or delegitimizes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's also a huge problem too. So midwives are trained basically in how to provide like vaginal births with very minimal medical complications. A lot of nurse midwives are trained in hospital settings and work in hospital settings. Um, State by state, they are allowed to do home births. Um, Like I know in Maryland, there's a handful of CNMs who are licensed to be able to um, provide like care for people in Mm -hmm. home settings. 
so they are the big ones. Um, and I think that one of the links I sent you guys kind of went over some of the history of how we used to have midwives attending most births and then physicians kind of got into the whole birth like territory and that sort of ousted midwives as being in that sort of role. And then nurse midwives were really the way that in like the mid 20th century, we started to see some sort of power given back, but it's really complicated because as we all know, being folks who have like navigated higher education, like higher education is really like prohibitively expensive. And so like, it really made like midwifery available to people again, but like a very specific class of people, which Mm -hmm. tended to be white women. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So like, in your opinion, I mean, I guess that this is one thing that like, it very much seems to me Mm -hmm. that the way to go is to kind of avoid the hospital system because there's all of these kind of horror stories of like, I mean, some of them were literally like, mothers die, which is extreme, but there's also tons of other stuff that happens right in a hospital setting because there's just so much demand. Like there's so many people Mm -hmm. in a hospital setting. Like in my mind, unless something like really you need some kind of emergency intervention, I don't see very many arguments for why you wouldn't try to just do a natural home birth with a midwife. Yeah. I mean, and I think I, I think that's really a fair conclusion to come from, from everything I sent you. And Mm -hmm. I think the caveat to that is also a thing you said earlier, which is like, you are not alone in when people think about birth and then they think about the images we've been presented about what birth is like. Like they think about tearing, they think about the fact that people die. They make the conclusions that like the way you avoid that is by having a birth in a hospital because we associate hospitals with safety Um, And they and people don't always have this information. One thing that I think is interesting, especially being somebody who was childless and still is childless when I decided to really start to explore this world is you realize that most of like most of the people in my doula training were people who had parented um, or had basically come to this work from their own birth experiences and basically from the knowledge that they built up when they themselves were pregnant. So was it weird for you not having that experiential, like having gone through it before yourself, learning about this stuff? Yeah, I think that, I think it's both good and bad. Not bad. It's been challenging at points, I think, and sometimes it's still challenging for me to have the confidence of like, I can really provide like good care to people. Um, and that's starting to shift. I think, especially it's just, it's taken time. I think the first two years of having this training and being somebody who was actively trying to be a doula to families. Um, I, I was also like 22. So I was like really young. Is it the kind of thing where, I mean, do you have like pay- like you've done like doula work where clients have like paid you to yeah. go through the whole process. I've done, I've done a mix. So I have done, um, most of the births I've done have been volunteer. I've done a, I've worked about three, four births. And then I've had other clients who have had to fall through because either like hospitals have policies sometimes around how many people can be. Hospitals have policies around how many people can be in the delivery room. And I've had people who were like, we'd love to work with you. And then it came down to like 
oh shit, it's either having you or the grandmas in the delivery room and yeah. like grandmas get the spot. Um, and it's been interesting sometimes cause I've run into some of those people and they've been like, yeah, in hindsight, kind of wish we had a doula. Grandmas were really complicated to have oh, in sure. the delivery room. Yeah. Um, and then I've done a lot of paid um, and volunteer postpartum work. Um, so in trying to like get clients, yeah. is it a weird thing for them to be like, well, why would I choose you who's never gone, th- right? As yeah. a, like, ha- like proving that you're, because like I feel yeah. like, I feel like I experienced that just in any kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get people to take you seriously when you're a young person. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It is it is a challenge. And I think what's been wonderful is, again, because back at home, I had a huge network of people who were also doing this work. And some of them were parents and some of them were not. I think especially my peers and like colleagues who were doing this work who did not have kids of their own a lot of us building community together was us sort of like hyping each other up and being like, nope, like we have valuable things to bring to this world. I also think that what the language I've heard some of my friends use with people who are prospective clients really resonates with me of, I am not, I don't think I'm the doula for everybody. Um, I really trust people, and I think part of my philosophy on providing birth care and postpartum care to people is to really trust people to make the decisions for themselves that feel best for them and their families. And for some people, that may be having me there. And it, and I do believe that, especially in doing this work, um, more so than certainly somebody who has seen like 20 or 30 or 40 births in their career, which some of the very seasoned doulas have seen numbers like that, like that does say something. But at the same time, I think that at the end of the day, what actually matters more is like, do you feel comfortable around me? Um, And do we sort of like have the chemistry that's needed for you to feel like you can just like be yourself and be with me in this very vulnerable place? Um, And I think that the more births I've been to and really just like trusted that I, especially I think because some of the volunteer work I've done has really been like being an on-call doula, which is very different from having clients. That's where like I get a text that says there's a mom at like Washington Hospital Center who needs a doula and I'm just showing up and I have to just trust like I'm the best person for her in this moment. And like there's there's no other option necessarily like I could duck out partway because I'm like I can't do this but then like where does that leave her um yeah I think that it really has been it's been an evolution to get to the point of being able to like have confidence in my ability Mm -hmm. and I also think so much of it is just about really saying I'm not the doula for everybody I can try my best and also in cases where people are choosing me as in a kind of client context, like I just believe in trusting parents to make the best decisions for themselves that they can, you know? Yeah. Um, I'd love to unpack sort of the concept of like birth being really medicalized yeah, and why like you feel like that's a problematic thing. Cause I, I, after reading all the stuff that you sent, I agree, but I like that, like there are just things that I didn't know. Right. Yeah. And I feel like we've been raised to feel like you were saying like hospitals are just what you do. You go to a hospital to give birth. So can you talk a little bit about why that's like not necessarily the case and why it's like kind of like 
bad to think that or problematic to feel that way. Yeah. So I think that I also, I want to start by saying, I don't necessarily know if I think that it's problematic to think that I do really believe hospitals have, have purpose in birth, um, sometimes. And I also think sometimes they are needed. And sometimes like, like I think one of the best things my doula trainer told us, which I thought was really great coming from her. Cause she's somebody who is like home birth midwife, very into like natural sort of health, like context for care. Um, she was always very quick to point out like all of the interventions that we have, um, that exist for people in birth, like do exist for reasons, things like Pitocin, which is like basically a synthetic form of like the hormone oxytocin that our bodies make, um, that helps like, um, helps labor kind of progress and continue like that has a purpose. Um, epidurals can have purpose. C-sections can have purpose and necessity. Um, I think that what's challenging is that like all things, honestly, in medical care, they also all are not like, they don't just exist in a vacuum and they don't exist without like social contexts. Um, women's health in general, or what's sort of been so-called women's health, because that's the other thing is that like people who have uteruses are not always like identifying as women. And so like this birth also gets sort of thrown into like, it's a women's health issue and it's like, it, it is and it isn't, but yeah, women's health has been subjected to a lot of the same problems of power and misogyny and, you know, being discredited. I mean, midwifery is something that is basically how we used to provide birth care for most people, how like basically all people accessed care. Um, and it was really that it was like this handful of like traditions that were sort of passed down generation by generation, um, primarily amongst women. Um, and then sometime around like the late 19th century is when physicians really decided that they wanted birth to be a part of their scope of care. And that came with, there's also sort of this whole evolution of different medical devices related to birth, like forceps, um, which are basically, I feel like the best way to describe it would be like tongs that <laughs> pull a baby out. Which literally look terrifying. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And it, and you know, like things like vacuum, like the vacuums that sometimes are used or forceps, like are intense and are really tough. Um, and again, like have medical necessity. I think that the things that are really tough about the conversation of the healthcare system and birth are that at the same time that these things are medically necessary, um, they also have this tendency to get overused in part because I think there are the pressures of healthcare systems <laughs> that come into play. There's the fact that, you know, like, there is a convenience that comes sometimes with things like planned C-sections or planned inductions. Um, you know, I think in like the business of being born, which is a really big birth documentary that Ricky Lake did that also got brought up in that podcast. I sent you guys that they had some reservations about, but I actually really like that documentary, which maybe shows some of my bias. Um, but you do see things like OBs that will schedule um, C-sections around like, vacation times like the reality is that those things do happen um and then at the same time like sometimes these things are necessary and I think that's the line that's really complicated there's it's so tricky to figure out 
where is the line like because it's it's mm-hmm. impossible to know, right? If you're mm-hmm. the average person who doesn't have any kind of medical background, right? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I actually need to do, yeah. right? To have this baby be healthy and deliver in a way that's like a least traumatic for me. Yeah. Right? And hospitals, do, and you know that like the people who have that information also have this weird financial incentive going on in the sense that C-sections yeah. are more expensive, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. and right? And yeah. so like, I think that there's this societal level of skepticism right now of these, you know, so-called experts who Mm -hmm. also have these monetary incentives involved. And it's like, can you trust them? And on the one hand, you're like, there's this, there's definitely this prevailing mentality of like, oh yes, like people should be trusting doctors. That's why Mm -hmm. we have anti-vaxxers. Like that's why. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the same time, it's true, right? There's like really, yeah. it's literally just so difficult to actually figure out the truth. Yeah. Right? It is. It's really hard. And it's hard because also I think what can happen with birth, like I think the other thing that's really important to emphasize about the birthing experience is that it's also so personal. Um, like again, and some of it is that things can just happen. Complications can happen that require like the same intervention that for that, that is again necessary for one person that for another person was entirely unnecessary. Um, you could also be somebody who has like, I don't want to say like a better or worse pain tolerance, but like people do also cope with the pain of childbirth in different ways and have different relationships, I think, to coping with pain in general. Um, that you also aren't even going to entirely know until you're giving birth, which is why I think I, especially when I've worked with people as birth clients, like, and they come to me with really like hard line objections of like, I don't want to have a C-section or I don't want to have an epidural. I really feel invested in the idea of like, let's unpack that and let's unpack like, where is like, where does that come from? And if that's the case, then I can, you know, I can work with you on like, different sort of measures of like how you cope when the pain's going to get really intense. Cause for most people, it does, it, it gets really <laughs> intense. I mean, there's this other um, person who is like a really big voice in like the birth world, Ina Mae Gaskin, who has done a whole lot of talks about like people who have like orgasmic feelings during birth. Yeah. And I watched a TLC show about that. Once. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, that's great for you. That is not what I've seen. Most, <laughs> most of the, people uh, don't feel that way. <laughs> yeah, most people don't feel that way in my experience. So, you know, I can talk with you about that, but also I do, I do feel like I think it's really important to talk through, okay, but this is actually what those things might look like. Um, this is what it might look like if you decide you want to have an epidural. Um, this is what it might look like in terms of, you know, what to expect if, it does end up being that your labor like stalls or doesn't progress and you end up having to have a C-section. Um, and I think that that for me is like the responsibility of like a good doula is not to sort of treat like the idea of, I think that there's this whole notion of like a birth plan that gets thrown around a lot and it's like sticking to the birth plan. Yeah. And that's like, you can't, you can't waver from that. <coughs> yeah. You can't but, like the best that. plan, like, allows room for like if shit changes absolutely and 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 being you know as prepared as you can be because i think the other thing about birth and you and i were kind of talking about it on friday as well is like it like a lot of these big life processes like i think some of this too is about we have a tendency in human nature to want to like enact control over things that we can't control the reality is that you can try your best to cope 
through what birth is going to throw you when you're going through the labor process, but you don't know how it's going to go until you're actually in it. Mm -hmm. You can have like as much information as you want and feel comfortable with at your fingertips, but that's not going to necessarily change the outcome Yeah, because you don't know the outcome. Yeah. It seems like it's important to just know the implications of whatever's going like whatever you like want to do and understanding that like hospitals are for the large for like large or a large majority of them are like businesses and are trying to make money yeah and like have incentives to like get mothers out and like can use things like c-sections to make things go faster yep and i think in one of the articles you you sent us it said that like states that allow like midwives to do home births have like significantly lower rates of c-section yes yeah um which like Leans, it leans into the idea that, like, you know, C-sections are getting done when, like, they probably weren't necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Are, they, are C-sections, like, any... Are they more dangerous than, like, a vaginal birth? Yeah, I mean, I I would say so in that the difference between a vaginal birth and a C-section is that, like, a C-section is major abdominal surgery. And yeah. that's also, I think, the biggest thing in terms of why, A, people don't... A lot of people, I should say, don't go into birth wanting to have a C-section is because the recovery time is longer. I mean, think about the muscles that are in that part of your body. Mm -hmm. Like you're having to cut through several layers of like abdominal muscles. And when you think about the direction of where those abdominal muscles like lie versus where the incision is made, like we make an incision across those muscles Mm -hmm. to get to the uterus. Um, And so... A lot of times, you know, you're looking at having like major like sutures that have to heal. There's risk of like hemorrhage that could happen. You know, I I, I don't want to necessarily go down the route of like the really bad shit that can happen. But like, I mean, there are also sometimes cases where like if something like does happen and you end up needing to have a hysterectomy, like those are things that do fucking happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that, yeah, like there are complications that come with like C-sections for sure that are pretty significant. You also like can't lift your baby for the first like couple of like weeks after. And that's also really challenging when you think about just like how taxing the first couple of weeks of postpartum are on your body. And then you again, throw in like major, like abdominal surgery and recovering from that. And then that being said, there are also things that can happen in vaginal birth that are really like scary and complicated hemorrhage can also happen because after you deliver a baby, you also need to like deliver a placenta. And that's actually where I think a lot of, I think that might actually be sort of the biggest complication people die from in in childbirth in the world today is is hemorrhaging um, after birth because. Is it related to having to deliver the placenta? Yeah. So think about it this way. Um, you have a uterus and basically the placenta is like attached to the wall of the uterus because that's the like interchange between mom's blood and fetal blood. Um, what happens after you deliver a baby, baby is attached via the cord to the placenta. That's how they're getting all their nutrients. The placenta basically as the uterus is contracting, people can't see, but I'm like using my hand as like a uterus that's like (laughs) contracting. Um, Basically the side of the placenta that's attached to the uterus is like slowly coming off of that. And then it passes through. Um, And placentas are big. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I know, I mean, I've worked with 
a couple of moms who it was their first time giving birth. And I've worked with a couple moms who had had subsequent births. And I just remember the first birth I was at, like that mom had a really tough labor. It was a back labor, which is basically where the hard side of baby's head was up against her sacrum. Usually at the point she was in, in labor, baby's head is turned. So the softer part, the front of their face has already like moved. So that's what's up against your sacrum. And it's less painful. What's your so sacrum? Sacrum is the bone that's um, holding to the two parts of your pelvis together. Um, okay. Is it in the so front or like in the back? It's in the back. Okay. So, so basically she was having this really, really painful labor that just like a lot of, lot of pain in her pelvis. Um, she was exhausted by the time that baby came out. And then like when they were like, okay, like now we've got to like work to get the placenta out. Like she just straight up yelled like, are you telling me I'm not fucking done with this? And it was like, you know, and like the placenta got out pretty shortly thereafter. But I mean, it's you look at it and it's like an organ that is pretty large um, and for most people is like not painful to pass because it's a lot softer. There's no like bones in it in the same way there are with like the, you know, five to 10 pound baby that you just delivered. But how how big is the placenta? I would say it depends. I've seen some that were maybe about like I'm cupping my hands together Mm -hmm. for listeners. Um, I've seen some that are like that small. And then I've seen others that are like, I mean, I'd say like a pretty like a, sizable, like a quarter pound steak. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, for, for real though. Like definitely like around that size. Um, a really funny comparison because people sometimes eat their placentas. Oh yeah. That's also a thing people do. Um, and usually they're doing that. I mean, some people will eat it like an actual, like an actual steak and like cook it on a stove. I have worked with some families who've done the dehydration of it and then they put it into capsules. And a lot of those folks claim that it ends up helping with postpartum depression. And sometimes they'll even make it into a tincture that they'll take when they're going through menopause. The science isn't entirely there. Um, (laughs) But that being said, I'm sort of of the belief that like, if, if you feel like it's helping with your postpartum depression, like, I think that like you should do whatever the hell you can do. Wait, it'll um, like stay good until you're like in your fifties. Like, like yeah, you- if you dry it and put it in like a tincture, so like in an alcohol oh. base. Um, oh, okay. Again, I. This is where I'm like, if it works for you, it works for you. Um, but that's the thing. There is all of this like kind of mythological yeah. stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. No, totally. I like, mean, and that's, yeah. yeah. Like, and it's, you know, and we're also seeing stuff with like the placebo effects, like is getting stronger. Exactly. Yeah. And so, which the, is to, in my mind, it's like, if you, even if it is a placebo effect, yeah. if it works for you, like you got what you're paying for. Like, it's yeah, like, <laughs> absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I think that's how I feel with things like that too. Like with, you know, with herbalism, the exceptions I have with that are that I really hope you're under the care of somebody who really understands the interactions of herbs with other medications you might take, you know, like things like St. John's wort, which a lot of people will take for depression, like can have some really not so great, um, uh, like interactions with certain medications. But I think that all of this also kind of goes back to, so, you know, like when we talk about the kind of medicalized, like narratives with birth and then the like, narratives that are a lot like more in opposition to that. What I really actually think that we need is we need to have kind of a better integration of the two. Um, You know, like there was that article that I sent you about the home birth midwife who is working in like the kind of North country area of New York. 
And I love, I mean, I love that article for so many reasons. One of them being that I think it really does justice to like what home birth looks like in a lot of this country. Um, and I also think it was like super non like sensationalized, but I also think one of the things that she talks about is that she has this really strong, like coordinated relationship with the hospitals in her area, um, where if she knows, like if she sees that something's going wrong, um, or if she sees that someone's maybe now in a high risk category, which means like, she's not going to take them on as a client. Like she has this very, um, coordinated way that she can connect with the hospitals and sort of the, they end up existing for like the things they're supposed to exist for. Um, and we're not necessarily putting people into this position where like their birth is going to get kind of unnecessarily like poked and prodded. Um, but like they're there for the reasons they're supposed to be there in the first place. And the reality is that we don't have a lot of that. And I think that's the thing that's really tough is like, you know, especially when I was talking before about the difference between nurse midwives and CMs and CPMs, um, there are definitely like in the same way that I don't like, I think there are a handful of OBs out there that are like not great. There are also midwives that are not great. Right. Um, all these people are like still people at the end of the day. They are still people and they're still flawed. Um, and it's not that like one is perfect and one is imperfect. Um, and it's hard because I think again, media narratives also do flatten that a little bit. They make it out like where it's either that like the, the midwives are like the bad ones and they're sort of doing these like back alley births or like yeah. the OBs are like bad and they're like doing these unnecessary like you know um medical interventions all the time um and the reality is that like regardless of whether they're a cnm or a cpm or a cm um some of them are really skilled and know what they're doing like a lot of them are and they understand that it's not like oh you like bring a mom in who's like hemorrhaging and you haven't like connected with the physicians at all it's like they know like oh no like these are sort of like the yellow traffic light signs of like this is when shit is maybe going to get complicated and it's out of my, for lack of a better way of describing it, like out of my pay grade. And I need to sort of like Mm -hmm. move it over to somebody who has a little bit more experience with some of these complications. Um, And yeah, I, I just think that that's what we need is we need that coordination that I don't think is exactly there. And I think that there are reasons kind of on both sides why it's not there. And we also have a system that doesn't facilitate it very well. Yeah. One of the things that I found really fascinating in the articles that you sent was like sort of the the incentivization on the midwife's part of like knowing that like some hospitals are like generally looked down on like home birthing as a as a thing. So they're less likely to like bring their bring their clients in when things are going wrong. Yeah. And so like but then like science gets produced saying that home births are more dangerous, but it's like biased in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that, you know, like that's what's happening in the U S and then you go to other countries. Like I can't remember where the rate of home births is in the Netherlands, but that's like one country where I think the vast majority of people are giving birth at home and you really don't end up seeing an obstetrician unless you sort of get tracked for specific complications earlier on. Or at certain points where things come up and it and having a birth at home is just not on the table anymore. Like and that their outcomes are not like bad because of that. You know what I mean? Like it's not like 
they're in any sort of big like maternal mortality crisis. We're the, the ones the on- in the mortality crisis. I was going to say, crisis, like, right? unlike the United States, where we really are, and it's a problem. And and yeah, it's it, it's we have a lot of work to do. I think like we have a lot of work to do in terms of really getting everybody on the same page and really getting people to kind of understand that like a lot of the things that we see kind of projected about home birth are not like always necessarily accurate and that like yeah there are absolutely like things that can go wrong in birth um I think what's challenging is I talk to a lot of folks especially my family because the other thing about doing this is even though me and my sister grew up watching a lot of this stuff together like I am totally like the birth nerd in my family like my mom will always just be like I can't believe I had like a kid who is fascinated by birth because my mom did not like giving birth whatsoever like (laughs) I mean, you know, there are definitely people who don't necessarily like it, but I think my mom is just like, yeah, this was probably my least favorite part of like the parenting process. My mom literally said it was the worst experience she's ever had. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's really, I think it's really sad that that's the case for a lot of people because I think there are other people I know, probably most of my clients, I think have felt like, yeah, like giving birth was rough. Um, but at the same time, like it was something that they feel like they really grew through. Mm-hmm. And I think it has the potential to be that. I, and I think it has the potential to be that whether you have a vaginal birth or you have a like C-section or whatever. I think it's really unfortunate when it doesn't end up being that way. I think that we'd be remiss to not at least touch on like sort of the way that birthing has like intersected with black history. Yeah. Um, uh, you sent over like some really good materials and we'll link all this shit in the, in the show notes um, cool. for the listeners out there. <laughs> um, but I really liked the piece that you sent about how like we're seeing less and less like black midwives Yeah. Um, and how there's a long history of, you know, like slaves performing that role that probably runs parallel to like the long history of like, slaves wet nursing white babies and things like that i just want like to acknowledge that yeah and like as an important thing yeah it it is an important thing and i think that it's like the history and the legacy of it is is one piece that also is really deeply tied into where we stand with like black maternal mortality like it's bad um yeah it's really bad out there Um, I think that we need, like, we need more black midwives. We need more black doulas. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think that I've thought a lot, like, especially as a white lady um, and as a white lady who, especially in some of the birth work I've done in D.C., like most of the folks who I end up like doing volunteer birth work with are black. And I feel like the role I want to sort of see myself transition into is like, I love providing direct service work of being a doula. Mm -hmm. I also have been thinking a lot about like, now that I'm at the point where I'm like, I have like enough knowledge about this stuff. How do I sort of ensure that like, it's not just a bunch of white ladies who are continuing to like disseminate this knowledge. Like, I think that I am starting to sort of understand like my roles and my responsibilities as being like, a person who helps disseminate this knowledge so that way like more folks can go out in their communities and like just take that knowledge and support 
people who like look like them. Um, yeah. I think that's like really that's like a huge problem in the healthcare system in general, but I think especially in this work. You know, there's I, I mean, there's also this sort of like growing body of literature that's been telling us like this shit we already know about like bias. <laughs> I think that's like a thing I get very I, I get really frustrated with a lot of that literature for that exact reason of like cool, this is literally telling us things that like people who've been in these like patient advocate roles, people who've, because I think that's really at the end of the day, in many ways, what a doula serves for someone is like really kind of being their advocate. Yeah, it's like the things people who've been in these advocate roles, the people who've been patients themselves have known for a long ass time is that like this bias has existed. Mm -hmm. White providers do not believe that their black patients have pain. <laughs> it's like when you see it actually play out, it's really something. Yeah. 243% more likely that a black mother dies during childbirth. Yeah. Which is fucking insane. It is. It is fucking insane. And that it's also when you also realize um, that I think that this is what also will get people sometimes is that like that number holds up regardless of like socioeconomic status. Yeah. That like, it, like there was a whole, I think it was a PBS series they did a whole episode about educated black women and their maternal mortality stats. Yeah. And also they're like the fact that they also continue to have like an elevated like risk of complications. Yeah. And it's easy. I think it's easy to sort of like intermingle those two issues because like poor people do receive worse medical care. But in this situation, well off black women are still yeah. like getting fucked over yeah. during childbirth. Yeah. And yeah, and that I think that, you know, this just goes back to, again, what I think a lot of us already know, which is that this is this is stuff that did not just appear yesterday. This comes from the fact that we have, you know, this whole legacy, as, you know, some of you will see in the articles that are going to be linked in this episode of you had um, like this whole group and this legacy of black women who were really skilled at providing this kind of care to other black women that essentially like the medical system decided to kind of strip of that knowledge and strip of the ability to like legally provide that care um, and then replaced those folks with white doctors. And we still have not really fully reached like a point of accounting for that in the medical system or otherwise. And so I think we have a really long ways to go, both on the birth front and the kind of like intersection of like this medical and all of the other sort of like dynamics we've talked about with birth. And then we also have a huge, huge way to go in terms of postpartum care and what we're doing with that. I've done a lot more postpartum care than I have birth care. And yeah, we're one of the only countries in like the global north who does not have um, guaranteed paid parental leave um, for after birth. We have a really long ways to go with that. There's a really great John Oliver um, like segment he did a couple of years ago where he's talking about what that means. Like that translates to, especially with a lot of the lower income parents I've worked with, um, that translates to people giving birth and then like two weeks later going back to work. Um, and I really believe no one should have to do that. Even if you had a, if you didn't have a C-section and you, um, you know, have normal ways of recovering from birth, no one is in any <laughs> position to like physically be able to handle like going back to work after giving birth. That's How long soon. is a more realistic time frame to? Oh, I think the research. So the research says um, really like six months 
yeah. would be ideal. Um, which not all countries have. Some countries only have about three months. But, you know, like, I think in the UK and Canada, it's like nine months yeah. leave is guaranteed, guaranteed paid. In the US, we have FMLA, which is three months. Unpaid. FMLA is Family Medical Leave Act. Yep. it's And that's unpaid. And that's only for companies that have like employee an employee count of like 30 something or more I believe. yeah and all that does is guarantee that you won't lose your job yep right yeah um and also i believe it's not um so say that like you were pregnant and you had a family member who got sick when you were pregnant so you took like a month of that um that means you would only really have two months available to you of leave like it's it's for everything and not just birth um and also most people i mean if we're going to talk about the medical care aspect with postpartum a the acog the american college of obstetricians and gynecologists just started to really shift their model for what they think postpartum follow-up care should look like it used to be you didn't see someone until six weeks after you'd given birth and while I think that was good in terms of ideally letting somebody like kind of lie in for a while and recover it also means that like six weeks is a long time when you have a newborn I also think a lot could theoretically could go wrong in six weeks in terms Mm -hmm. of like complications can come up postpartum depression can really sink in you're not really like the fact that you're not having any contact with a provider until then is really I think not ideal. And again, ACOG is starting to shift on that to sort of sooner follow up, but there's also implementation problems with that as there is with um, like the fact that sometimes like medical colleges will put out opinions about what should be done. And then actually seeing that implemented takes many more years after the fact. So yeah, that's probably (laughs) the last soapbox I'll get on in relation to this episode. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's so much work to be done in these various different areas. Like, I'm trying to just understand in terms of, like, how to actually go about trying to implement that kind of change. Like, is it mostly... A question of, so obviously it seems like the family medical leave, that's the kind of thing that is just a policy issue, right? And it's the kind of policy issue that you'd think would be super bipartisan because Republicans are really into families, Mm -hmm. Democrats, like everyone is kind of like pretty pro that. Like you'd think it would not be controversial at all. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah. No, totally. I mean, and I think this is where you would think it would be totally not controversial and yet (laughs) we are we live in a country that I think a I think there's a bunch of people in the same way that there's a whole class of people who've never had to experience what it's like to have shitty insurance Mm -hmm. there's also a whole class of people who have never had to I think a experience like shitty healthcare experiences and b have had to experience what it looks like to be working third shift somewhere and like that's your partner and then like you work at like a gas station and like the gas station's gonna fire you if you don't show up to work after but like do like, you think after. the main counter argument is just that like all these businesses like are gonna be more hesitant to hire women because they know that they might just lose them for nine months or like you know what I mean mm, like what is the question. the real issue like why is it actually controversial like why hasn't it happened already you know I think the real problem honestly is that and I'm, I won't mince word he, words here. It's that like our country hates moms. Like I really think that's what it translates down to is that like from a business end, like we do not see mothers as productive members of the economy, even though they are. <laughs> but what it actually translates to, I mean, like there's a lot of statistics out there around if you are like a female person and end up like having a child, most of those folks will never recoup the earnings they would have potentially had if they did not have children. 
In terms of addressing like all of these problems, I think it's really honestly just that it's a mix of like policy things we need to address, like with these things like paid parental leave. I think that it's also addressing broader problems in the healthcare system. And I do think while it's like addressing the systemic problems of the healthcare system, at the same time, it's addressing the fact that like we as like individuals need to be advocates for our health. I think that's really an important role that doulas play, honestly. I don't necessarily, like when I think about myself being an advocate for somebody in that role, I don't see it as like, I'm the one who has to like get in there and get in between them and the doctor. Like I want to be somebody who's supporting someone to be able to um, ask questions themselves. I want to be like the soundboard for them to like talk about their concerns so that way they can better articulate them um, to their provider. Um, And also I feel like it's also about like sharing some of the knowledge and insight I have from being somebody who's seen these dynamics play out. And yeah, I think that's really, it's it's just going to take this kind of like multi-pronged, like coordinated approach that intersects medicine and intersects policy and ourselves. And that's the only way we're going to be able to address some of these problems. Yeah. But it's it's a lot. <laughs> it feels like a good place to wrap. Yeah. I have one last question because yeah. you mentioned like the fact that they never recoup their their in, that income. Yeah. This is something that I've I've mentioned on previous podcasts. But what do you think of the like? What do you think? Do you think it'd be a good thing if we, are, as a society, we decided to pay mothers for their labor as a mother? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think so. I think that could happen in kind of a variety of ways that would probably be more, um, maybe more digestible to like the like people in the United States because I I just can imagine even family members of mine who like would just like balk at that idea. Right, right. Um, but I think maybe honestly that translates into having a more robust social like safety net. Um, I think that maybe translates into guaranteeing things like universal childcare. When I think about like universal basic income and how we're probably going to have to look at that in our future anyways, um, maybe it translates into something like that. Yeah, I absolutely think that. I also think maybe the other piece of it too, yes, we should compensate moms for their labor. But I also think that the other thing about it as well is like, there, you know, there are a lot of companies that like, might offer paid like maternity leave, but they don't like the reason I use paid parental leave, or at least I think I've used the like phrase paid parental leave. And when I've been talking about this is because I think it's also about normalizing the involvement of both parents, you know, whether it's like a queer household or straight household or what, like, I think that when we think of birth as being something that like straight people have done where there's a mother and a father, like the labor does tend to fall on mom. And in certain ways it's, it's going to fall on the birthing parent in more ways than the non-birthing parent, because things like breastfeeding just have to like happen when they happen. Um, and you might be like getting up at four in the morning and then maybe you got up at two in the morning before that and we're up at midnight. But that I think even just like normalizing the idea of like both parents have this chunk of time taken off, um, is also going to be, I think a part of that equation, which I don't know, that's not necessarily answering your question, but I do think it's part of it too, is that like, yeah, we need to compensate moms for their labor, but I think we also invisibilize that other labor to make like households work. I 
you know, I follow, I don't follow as much of them as I used to, but like, I definitely did at one point follow a lot of like mom influencers. And there's this way that they sort of project a certain image of what motherhood is that's very, very sterilized. Like their houses look really pristine. Their children look really like happy and really well behaved. And they're just um, eating apples and carrots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have like these little, like, you know, like tensile fabric, like, and linen fabric clothes. <laughs> and they're just like happily wearing their cloth diapers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like, meanwhile, like what's, what you're not seeing in that scene is like the black or brown nanny that makes their life function the way that it functions. And by the way, like these parents are usually white and, and yeah, like that is, I think that's labor that's always been invisibilized and not talked about in this conversation that absolutely needs to be like a part of how we understand like parenthood. And that we also, I think need to like normalize the fact that like, you know, there's like that proverb, like proverb adage, whatever, like it takes a village and like it really does. Um, and that's probably a whole topic for a whole other podcast. I know, like I really, I know, like it's, we could, I could go on. This is like the kind of shit yeah. I could talk about all day. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'll wrap up there. It takes a village. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. For coming on. I know that you want to be a mom. Like, do you see yourself with all of your knowledge? Do you see yourself doing like a home birth or a hospital birth or like, where do you think you fall on that scale? Oh, that's a good question. Especially. So I will also kind of contextualize that a little bit more for readers. 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 Sorry. I'll contextualize. The- keep this one i will contextualize that question a little bit more um for listeners i um had two miscarriages last year and have been like actively trying to have a kid i'm like taking a little bit of a break now but that is something i'm like working towards kind of as like a solo parent by choice i am not so sure i was working with my last pregnancy i was seeing um the midwives who worked out of a freestanding birth center Mm -hmm. um and i wasn't satisfied with my care there and so now i'm sort of back to the drawing board um so yeah i think that i will probably end up doing some hybrid of something that still lands with me like being managed like through a hospital birth but then also i don't know i've met like the home birth midwives around here and i also really like them and so I think I'm still kind of gauging it, but again, trying to do the thing that I would probably guide like a person I was working with to do and keeping my options open. Cool. Uh, follow us at I'm the villain pod on Twitter and Instagram. Big shout out to us for doing a fucking killer live show. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Went really good. We killed it. We'll probably drop the recording. Well, we're definitely going to drop the recording either as a bonus or as a regular, but uh, so listen up for that. Uh, Let us know if you have any questions. Otherwise, bye.